0: okay today on standing on the shoulders of giants we have with us jose barrera jose you have a pretty stellar background in artificial intelligence computer science among other things and also wow you had a really really amazing you have some really amazing stories from growing up in like 80s and 90s colombia and there's some 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 pretty Pretty famous things, especially with with various TV shows that have recently come out, etc. So I'd love um, I'd love a little bit of background. Can we Can we dive in? What What caused you to go into AI? What's What's um, What's your current current role, etc.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think life took me to AI uh, because it's the thing now. And and usually what happens is that possibilities arise in the market based on on demand. So these the new things, right? Like in the, at the time of probably most of the audience is young enough to remember this, but uh, at the time of the dot-com boom, like naturally the markets attracted people towards that, right? So I think finance, those those like hedge funds, that, that kind of things are, the, the things that are hot in the economy uh, are the ones that attract and, and bring people in, right? Makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, was there was there a specific catalyst for things that were were really interesting um, about artificial intelligence, or was it just computer science in general, and then you happened to fall into
1: AI? I happened to fall into AI, and to tell you the truth, I, it's not my forte. It's not like my my strength, my real strength, because uh, at the time when I was uh, studying computer science and, and so on, uh, AI, even though it has a long history. Uh, was not a big thing, right, um, among uh, most people, but was very specialized. And, in, and now it, it has become a trend in, in the last couple of years. And anyone who wants to sell any piece of software now has to say that is AI. <laughs> it's not. They they say that now. So uh, my 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 real background, right, is in computer languages and compilers and human machine interaction. So that's and data visualization. That's that's my forte, really. But the, throughout the years, through being spooned through and working with all these very talented people, uh, I, I got to learn uh, a little bit of AI. Awesome.
0: And then your, your, current, your current company is Elemental Cognition. Is, is they, as I understand it, it has a pretty strong AI mission.
1: Uh, correct, correct. The company was uh, founded by Dave Ferrucci. Dave Ferrucci is basically the guy who uh, run the team at Watson, famous Watson from IBM, uh, for people who don't know about it. Uh, there was this, there is this uh, very famous popular TV show called Jeopardy. And after we have conquered the, the horizon of playing chess, one of the big next horizons in, in, in artificial intelligence, was to be able to beat the questions at, at, at Jeopardy. And uh, this team at IBM uh, created a piece of software called Watson in honor of the founder of IBM, uh, who actually won uh, against the, the US champion of, of Jeopardy. So that's what uh, brought this to fame and, and basically made Watson known. And it, it's used today in, in in various fields. And it became something popular basically after that. Uh, from there, I, I, I met Dave. And that's one of the things why I ended up working at, 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 at uh, with him is because of, of Watson, right? Because I, I'm very interested in those things. So that's why I ended up there. And he's a startup that has been around for, for some time now. And we have like 45 people. And what we do is hybrid uh, artificial intelligence. What's hybrid artificial intelligence? So basically uh, you have two sides, right? Like what what people are know, most of they know is they know neural networks and they know chat GPT and those things that you hear now every day. Uh, But those models are statistical models, basically. That what they do is they tell you they're trained on a set of data and they learn, if I tell you, uh, tell me a red, what, what I'm thinking about a red fruit, what is the fruit I'm thinking of, you would say.
0: Me, I'm weird, I'd probably say strawberry, but maybe you want me to say apple. <laughs>
1: Correct, but but you see, you, you, want, you knew that I want you to, because it's the most probable thing. And uh, most, uh, like we humans, have a, a strong, or we work in, in that way, right? Like we do a lot of, of these kind of guesses all the time in language. We are not aware of that. Uh, so these networks are trained on that, and, but there is statistical models where they've been trained with a lot of data, a lot of language, uh, texts, and they, they're they able to guess what is the next, if I ask something, I can say, what is the next probable thing, that the most probable thing that I should say to this, based on all the information that I have. But that's the extent of them, that's that's all they do. And and we can do very impressive things with them, with the massive amounts of data that we have, but but they, they're they lacking, right? So the, the, the analogy is our brain. So we have an intuitive side, that would be that, the, the, sto, the stochastical side, where, where you're basically guessing. And then the other one is where, where you reason. and And when you reason is that you have a model in your head about what reality is or, or the problem that you're trying to solve, and then you, you know rules or inference rules about that, and you can follow them to come to conclusions. So uh, I think this kind of approach, which is very similar to what we humans do, uh, is the right approach to to uh, future AI because it makes up for the for the shortcomings that, that only using stochastic models have, right?
0: Okay, you're you're mentioning stochastic quite a bit, and I, I'm relatively familiar with stochastic versus deterministic. But do we want to explain that for sort of the listeners?
1: Uh, sure. So, uh, if I have a set of rules, right? A implies B, B implies C, C implies D, and I have A, then I can I can say, oh, D. I can deduce D because it's deterministic in the sense that the rules. If you follow the rules, you inevitably are going to end up on that on that D, if you start with A. Uh, when when you're talking about something that is probabilistic, is that you know the answer, but but you have uh, probabilities of what are the, the the most likely outcomes, and then you can follow those chains. And but it's undetermined; it's just probabilistic. So you can come up to to those kind of answers from there.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think something I've, I've heard reasonably often is um, it compared to a gumball machine. When you put in one quarter, you're guaranteed to get one gumball each time. So therefore it's deterministic, but it's also stochastic in the sense of you never know what color it's going to be. So it's also very random.
1: Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect analogy, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so in your work with yeah. artificial intelligence, have you come across any moral
1: conundrums? Mm, me personally? Sure. <laughs> uh, probably not. It's, it's latent there, right? Like, like when, you, when you're creating software, to, to, when, when you have to make decisions and people have to make decisions, uh, if you come up with the wrong answer, people can be making a, a decision that is costly, right? Uh, so so there are segments or, or, or parts of, of our economy or, or of knowledge in general where you have to be very damn sure that you're giving the right answer because a lot of money or a lot of uh, even lives could, could depend on that. So I used to work like writing the trading software before for a long time and I was in fintech. And any error that you put in your code is... It could be like cost millions of dollars. So so it's always there, right? And I can only imagine the responsibility of people that are trying to create automated cars. (laughs) I think I don't know how those guys sleep every night. (laughs) Yeah, I I
0: I can definitely understand that. Well, we've sort of talked a bit offline about some of the. Let's say moral conundrums that could cut up, come up with AI. Mm How do we, first of all, can we identify a couple of those? And second of all, what, what will we do to mitigate those or can we mitigate them?
1: Okay. So the, so for example, I heard one of your guests before talking about this in automated cars, you come to a split second decision where do I kill the granny that is crossing the street or do I save the driver, right? That kind of thing. Uh, so, I think that you have to look to nature to see answers for any problem. And the fact that every person is an individual, and you're making those decisions every at, at every moment, what that and every person is different, then that means that the algorithm or the recipe that you're using to make that decision is a slightly different on every person or very different on every person. So what happens is that there is no a central place where a nerd in front of a computer is doing a value calculation where he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to go for the granny because I love my granny, right, or whatever. But the beauty is that in nature, nature is running various experiments or like Anya and a, a multiplicity of experiments at every second and each of them is different. So it's distributed in the sense that every single driver of a car has a different background, and a different set of skills and so on, which means that in a, on average, what's gonna happen is only gonna happen once, right? Because that person is a particular case. Now, if you have a, a fatal flaw inside one of these self-driving cars, then you're gonna kill all the grannies or, or you're gonna save all the passengers or whatever is gonna happen. And I think, so the, the, the biggest solution to these problems is decentralization, right? Like having diversity in the way you do things, uh, which is what nature does at every moment, right? Like nature is a, a big experiment on diversity, basically. That's, that's what we are, right? Like trial and error at every second on every decision. For sure, I think one of
0: the more interesting things about that is I believe as as humans, we're just starting to realize that these are all that even though they're very different basis for systems that they are just yeah. systems. So nature is effectively it's you know it's using biology and cellular structure, whereas computer science like we work on, we actually are are doing very similar things, but we're doing it with electrons and theoretically significantly less consequences but w- because we're not we're not making and destroying biological entities right um, right which is interesting because then then you end up getting to this sort of the question of you know the, the question that's on everybody's mind since chat Ch- chat gpt and and things of that nature is sort of the agi right the um the artificial general intelligence the hal 9000 the star trek computer the right right. the big scary every nerd's dream (laughs) dream but at the same time it seems like a lot of people are also making significant i don't know either you you would say money but they're definitely garnering significant attention by effectively being doomsayers for the AGI is going to kill us all or it's going to turn into right. Skynet and terminator or whatever. And there's, there's definitely some interesting stuff there. Yeah. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on some of the AGI's?
1: Okay. So yeah, I understand where these doomsdayers come from and if history is a good teacher, right? Like look at what we, the first thing that we did when we split the atom, what was it? right? Like. we we created atomic bombs with it, exactly. So if that's a good, like if past behavior is is a good indicator of, of future behavior, then I understand where they're coming from, right? Because these things can be easily weaponized in many ways. And I can see how this could happen, especially when you have economies that are driven by, by, by the military in, in many cases, right? And it's a, a lot of funding in a lot of places comes from from the U.S. military. I, to, to give you an example, when I worked, like my first job at uh, uh, when, when I first came here to the United States was at the Department of uh, Neuroscience at NYU. And uh, the biggest funding was from the U.S. Navy. <laughs> Like you would think like why is the US Navy investing in neural lines But yeah, it's it's humanitarian reasons of course. So so that's the nature of the thing is that we we live in a society where our technology advances because of the investment on thinking on on, on how to advance. Like every single piece of Technology that we have today, if you think where it comes from, has military bases or applications at some point in the past. So, so uh, laser surgery on your eyes comes from lasers that they're weapons basically, or they were studied first, studied as weapons, and to create lightsabers like in Star Wars. Right, that hasn't happened yet, unfortunately. It's,
0: it's interesting because I think you're right. A lot of times, brand new technology is, is first exploited, exploited for warfare and then mm-hmm. eventually turned into something good, like you know, nuclear power is powering like, something therapy, like 95% yes. of France, a huge portion of the United States, et cetera. But you're right, we Absolutely. turned it into, into bombs first.
1: Um, Absolutely. And, and the problem with that is that as we control more power because the tools that we make are more powerful, then the impacts and the, the possible destructive uh, possibility, like the destructive power of those things is bigger, right? So like, just like, I find it in, absolutely crazy that the first atomic explosion in Nevada, the Trinity experiment, there was a theoretical possibility that the chain reaction that they created with the explosion would basically react with the oxygen and the hydrogen in the atmosphere and would ignite the atmosphere of the planet. But they still decided to go ahead and do the donation, the, the, the right? Because it was, it was more important to win the war than to annihilate the whole, the whole planet. So is, that kind of judgment is, is really, really scary when you think about it.
0: I agree that the Manhattan Project definitely was had some, some very crazy things. It had some really interesting things come out of it, uh, Monte Carlo method, among other things. Uh, von Neumann and and obviously Oppenheimer being after that staunchly anti um, a- anti atomic weapons uh, right. and a bunch that, of U S generals
1: like Eisenhower as well. <laughs> yeah.
0: In fact, that was one of the, it's one of the more famous U uh, S president's final speeches. Is uh, Eisenhower warning about the military industrial complex? I believe he was the last five star general ever in the United States, and then he became president, and he was specifically warning, "Hey." This is a real, like, this is a real problem. We've we've unleashed something. Um, that said, before we before we continue down that path, I did want to mm? go back to the AGI for just a half second. Mm. And at what point in time do you? I guess my question is more along the lines of, how would we know that we even created the AGI? I mean, this is this is one of the things that I've always been curious about. When we recognize true consciousness when we've created it um, i've theorized that it could be the result. honestly I've, I've literally theorized that the agi would end up resulting from a runaway optimizer and that we wouldn't do it on purpose it would actually be almost an accident it would be on purpose in the sense of the code is designed to get better the code is designed to learn the code is designed to absorb but someone does sort of a runaway optimizer that connects to everything, and it, and it continues to optimize and optimize and optimize. And at a certain point, not only is it overwriting its own code, but something occurs to where it's now conscious. My question is, what do you think that something might be? Because I, I can't even
1: right. I can't I, even I, think through
0: what that might look like.
1: I don't think that's the right path to create uh, consciousness. Uh, I think consciousness just like uh, is the secretion of our brain. So if if it is produced by the brain at all, but basically self-awareness that expresses itself in space-time and, and, and the reality as we see it, colors and the sensations, qualia, qualia is, is the word. Uh, that thing uh, I think is is... Being being human is what creates that being sentient, and more than that, metacognition, right? Like the not because a dog is 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 conscious, but it cannot think about its own consciousness, or at least we we know because we have not been able to ask them, or, or they're not interested in telling us. But uh, that thing, like the problem is that it, at every generation there is a defining technology that ends up being the paradigm that we use to measure the world. So when they first came up with clocks and watches, people start thinking that humans are watches and clocks, right? And uh, and then we became, like, when you start having the steam machine and, and uh, the Industrial Revolution, then we were steam machines. And, and now, because the technology that we have is, like, the, the, the paradigm that we have is computers, we think that we are computers, and we model ourselves as, oh, the brain is a big computer, and so on. But uh, to me, that's that's you're anthropomorphizing your your technology. And the other thing is that that is super interesting is that technology changes us. So it's not that we're just creating technology, but we live in this symbiotic relationship with the technology that we create, and. I don't like to call it artificial, right? Like the the constructs that we do, because I think we as humans, that's what we produce, right? Like just like the ants produce the ant nests and we produce technology, we produce tools and they're as natural as everything else that nature creates. So, but the problem with that technology and, and those tools that we create is that they're not neutral, but they get into our psyche and create the metaphors that we live by. Uh, so so that question of, of like if you wanna create a smart being, I can think of a better way to do it. It's fun, you don't need clothes, and you have a good time, and then but you have to feed it for 15 years until it grows up, right? Uh, So that's the best way to create intelligence. If you like human intelligence, you want to mimic that. Machines don't have the experience that we have. And I think a big part of the way we behave and so on is that we have these very basic needs, right? That come from our instincts and our emotions and our feelings. And... In order to fulfill them, then we create all these tools around us and we create these mechanisms of thinking and codifying and things in language and all that to fulfill those necessities. But if you create a machine that only creates the, the aftermath that is the thinking without the motives for that thinking, then is that truly, I, I don't know, right? Like I think being human is a big part of, of being intelligent in the way we understand intelligence, right? Because you look at the Amazon and, and that thing is intelligent on in its own way and in, and in ways that we don't even understand because we we, we we don't share the same set of values or because values are human, not, not, not Amazonica, like they're not forest, they're, but these things clearly have a, a, a way of living and a way of doing things in a very particular and very wise way when you look in, in, in retrospective. But the, the thing is that we cannot anthropomorphize them and therefore we don't ascribe intelligence to them because we cannot relate to them. So even if you had aliens that came to Earth tomorrow, how would you recognize that they're intelligent? I mean, you don't you, you have a standard to measure that, we, we only have ourselves and and what we do the way we look at the world is we put a mirror everywhere and we measure everything our against ourselves so a true alien which is completely different to us we wouldn't wouldn't even recognize it right like whatever you say that's a cloud or whatever
0: yeah it's a good point i mean I, besides the fact that of course it required human actors i think star trek was actually pretty pretty good about this and they literally classified nearly everything as humanoid. And the things that weren't humanoid, besides the fact that I'm sure that it was more expensive for special effects and <laughs> it's much more difficult to relate, usually those were the things that they really didn't get along with very well, it's like these <laughs> big amorphous blobs of nonsense that had no human characteristics. So I, I, I definitely understand where you're going with that one. Um, that said, it's, it's an, it, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Because we talk about consciousness as the ability to think about its own thinking. And I, I, I think you're right. I don't think dogs can do that. I don't <clears throat> think dolphins can do that. I'm not sure monkeys can do that.
1: It's more than thinking to me, is awareness of your own awareness. Because awareness and thinking are different. Like like the fact that you can sense like like that you can sense what a taste is, or that you can perceive colors. In a way that is not linguistic, is is basic to your core, and it's undescribable at the end, right? Like I, I can I can give you certain properties of the wavelength of colors and all those things, but those things are totally orthogonal from the qualia or qualia, because because qualia that thing is unnameable, is the experience itself, is it cannot be expressing words beyond poetry.
0: Yeah, by the way, I just looked that up. It seems like qualia, just for the listeners, is a term that philosophers use to describe the nature or content of our subjective experiences. By the way, that's a really great word. Um, From quality. I've heard it multiple times. I don't think I've ever actually used it, though, so nice.
1: It comes from quality. Is that the same root as quality? That makes sense. Uh
0: Um, Okay, so um, that said, speaking of all this, yeah. human and things of this nature i think a lot of us were introduced via a couple of different tv shows to something called magical realism which is ah. very much a colombian thing as i understand it right um you grew up in bogota throughout the 80s and 90s etc
1: what was that like correct so Actually, Dave is trying to be politically correct. He's talking about Narcos, my friends. Well, there's multiple, different, there's multiple shows, but Narcos <laughs> is one of them, yes. Is, is drug dealing in, in, in Latin America. And the problem with black markets, right, like you guys experienced in the, here in the time of the prohibition as well, is that it creates the root, the mo- they become the most profitable markets, and they attract the most ruthless people. Uh, And that's what happened in Colombia. And basically, I grew up there. I I went to high school uh, at the height of the war on drugs in Colombia, where Pablo Escobar was the richest man on Earth. Like, if you can think of that one. (laughs) He was so wealthy that in order to exchange for that, that the, the justice system in Colombia would leave him alone. He proposed to pay the external debt of Colombia yeah. from his own pocket. Yeah. That's how wealthy he was. Like, imagine, imagine that Just to put it in, 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 in perspective, imagine that the how much is thirty two trillion dollars? Like the liabilities of the United, States, or like the debt, the external debt of the United States, or is 34? I think I, th-
0: I think I think the the
1: external debt at present, I think it's actually only eight trillion. He's eight trillion. Okay, imagine it's eight trillion, and and you have a guy so wealthy. You say Bill Gates comes tomorrow, and and he's dealing in drugs or something like. Is that's why it's called magical realism? Because it's magical, right? These these things are like so extreme and absurd that it's hard to. But imagine that. Imagine that Bill Gates is doing vaccines, but he's dealing cocaine underneath the the table, and and he's so wealthy that the government is chasing him and he decides you know what if you leave me alone i'm gonna pay the debt of the united states one individual that's how profitable that thing was so i grew up in a place where that was what happened and, and basically that turned the, the whole society upside down uh, because all of a sudden you have to have all this new money that is flooding colombia and these very violent people they were called the sicarios who were the mobsters basically the hitmen and and they had fancy cars and all this. And I remember when I was growing up, like I was probably like 19, 20. So we used to go clubbing with my friends. I I'm, I'm like first year of college or something like that. We go to a club, we're in the middle of the club, we're dancing and all of a sudden you, you hear a big explosion like boom. And then the whole place shakes, right? Like the music stops, the lights blink. Everybody's like freezes. One, two, three, four, five, nothing else happens. The music goes up again and everybody keeps dancing. That was like, you get used to anything. I remember when I was in Colombia, I had a girlfriend. I was driving her back home. I was probably 20. I'm driving her back home one night and there is a car in front of us. We're on a light waiting for the light to go. It's like probably like two o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden a motorcycle comes and cuts us in, where it stops right in the middle between us and, and the car and the light. The guy gets the guy in the motorcycle gets a machine gun and guns out the car in front of me. Wow. So I'm in the car, so I back up and take a side road and run away but that's that's the kind of place i grew up in it, it was like incredible wow i'm i
0: mean first of all i'm glad you made it out of there but second of oh, all yeah. i i've been to um i was actually in colombia about two or three years ago uh mm-hmm. specifically actually in in medellin where where um pablo was from and i actually went mm-hmm. to barrio de pablo escobar and it was um it was r- really interesting apparently The story that I heard was he paid this unbelievable amount of money to relocate all these people um, from this like sort of floodplain at the bottom of uh, at the bottom of not at the bottom of Medellin, but like at the bottom of the county that Medellin is in Mm -hmm. and then brought them all up into the city, into this one neighborhood, bought houses for literally every single one of them. So I I do understand that some people really I mean, to this day, they consider him an absolute saint. They consider him a hero for a lot of the stuff Absolutely. that
1: he did. Absolutely he was he was adored by by the people who he who took uh, took care of in Colombia. And and one of the reasons why he was f- so hard to catch is because he used to get into these uh, they in he's called barriadas which are these these uh, slums and 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 people used to hide him in their houses and it was a big honor for them to to hide him and he and up to today, I think I think today after they have made so many shows about him and so on, there's a lot of people that that think very highly of him, right? Not the people who died in his bombs and all this, but, but there's people who he changed their lives for the good in in many ways because he gave them money, right? Like he with all these at the time, it's like millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> He gave millions and millions of dollars to all these people. One funny story, this story is hilarious about Colombia. So uh, he used to have a farm, like a big hacienda, and he learned that wild animals, like, like big game animals, like wild animals from Africa, the feces of these animals basically scare the, the, the dogs that are trained to catch cocaine. So what he used to do is in order to to export his drugs, he used to take the the manure, the the feces of these animals, and he used to take the packages of cocaine and cover them with that. So when they were imported, the dogs used to sniff them and run away, right? So when he was captured, his zoo, his hacienda was abandoned and the animals escaped and one of the animals that he had like a lot of them were hippos hippopotamus i've heard so about he this this these, is yeah. he, he's wild because they're they're native from the nile river and they were all the only there they have no natural predator even in in egypt right uh, so they brought him to colombia and now they're a pest there's so many of them and they've been killing all the natural wildlife and so on because they don't have natural predators and but which is a good thing in a way because an animal that was supposed to be near extinction in in, in 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 the Nile now is alive and well doing in in South America because of Pablo Escobar. So that's that's magical realism for you. It's it, yeah, it's true. I heard about that. There's apparently there are
0: hippos all over the place, and they have managed to breed and go all everywhere. And yeah, there's just they're they're literally apex predators, top of the food chain. Nothing and, and comes for hippos
1: you look at them and they're so cute and so no they're brutal oh they're they scary head they behead lions like it's crazy
0: anything that takes on a lion is is <laughs> oh, yeah. is definitely t- top of the food <clears throat> chain um that said what was the route so you you grew up in colombia um definitely have some amazing stories about that and then uh, is there something in particular, what, what did, uh, was it co- a computer science in particular that,
1: that you, you wanted to move to the U.S.? Uh, <clears throat> so at the time I was, I, was, I was in college, at the time of all these stories, and there is a, a very renowned Colombian scientist in neuroscience, and he was working with Colombia. It was like a, the, the Colombian government at the time wanted to improve the living situation in Colombia. So he, the, the, the government asked the, the, the big figures in, in, in Colombia to make a think tank to see how they could improve the situation in Colombia. Uh, so they did so, and this scientist, his name is Rodolfo Linas, uh, he was the dean of uh, NYU uh, Physiology and, and Neuroscience at the time. He decided that he wanted to make some software for educational software to bring to schools and so on. And at the time I was doing college there and I ended up working in this project, building the software for him. And he liked my work and asked me if I wanted to come here to work for him at uh, NYU Medical Center. And that's how I, I came for a couple of years and 30 plus years later, I'm still here. There
0: you go. Awesome. (laughs) It's funny because our mutual friend has decided to do the opposite. She's from... What, i i can't remember where drea was born drea was born i think she's she's from idaho i want to say idaho which is like the most white bread place in, the, in, this, in in the country it's just i mean very very little happens up there and then now she's in the middle of the colombian amazon i believe with her
1: shaman boyfriend <laughs> yeah i i heard your podcast with her she's an explorer an adventurer like and she's in a very, very nasty spot in Colombia, basically.
0: Like in the oh, yeah. Of it. She's, it's pretty wild. I'm, I'm in shock that she's, well, to be honest with you, I would be in shock if it were anybody else. I'm <laughs> actually not in shock because it's Drea. <laughs> she's definitely an, an amazing explorer and whatnot, but she's doing a pretty awesome thing down there. She's doing, you know, the, uh, the carbon credits. And actually, she, um, she's talking with a bunch of the shaman who apparently have like pretty good relations with the narcos and like, listen, you know, one way or the other, we need to, we need to basically keep the, this forest around. Um, so she's doing, she's doing some really great work down
1: there. I wish Uh, her good luck, man. Tough, (laughs) tough job. She's a tough, she's she's a tough cookie.
0: (laughs) That's the thing. She, I mean, if there's anybody who can get it done, it's Drea. There's no question about that. Um, that said, So again, we were sort of talking last week a little bit about this and I kind of wanted Mm -hmm. to jump back into it, which was where can we go with this consciousness as far as like AGI's are concerned? Is there a preliminary step? So for instance, right now, basically AI is, is pattern recognition, right? It's a lot of linear algebra that does, it's really, really good at pattern recognition. Um, it's also really good at probability. That's, I mean, a a, a Ch- chat GPT is effectively a probability engine, top to bottom. And these are all examples of narrow AI. How do we widen narrow AI such that we eventually combined it and get this sort of AGI, right? So you've got, we, we've kind of talked about some of the consciousness things, but we've kind of <clears> agreed <throat> that in order for humans to realize that it's conscious, it needs to sort of mimic some sort of human consciousness. Therefore, it's gonna need cognition for some definition of that word. It's going to need visualization, some type of sensory experience, definitely a lot of NLP, so natural language processing like chat G- GPT has. Um, it may even need locomotion, potentially. I mean, assuming we put it in a robot or something like that, like and again, this is to DARPA, be able to-
1: You want one, one of those creepy DARPA dogs with Yeah. intelligence?
0: yeah those are weird i i mean I, people people are seeing those around Boston and like freaking out like what is that thing for for the listeners if you if you sort of google these things there's some DARPA projects and some I believe there's also Boston robotics and a couple of other different places that are kind of coming together to do these weird looking robotic dogs that that are autonomously roaming the city and doing i mean they're not really doing anything other than roaming the city and capturing video et cetera but yeah they're they're creepy.
1: Have you seen the one with machine guns on top? That's that's the creepiest one. <laughs> I mean,
0: th- I mean with th- that that always brings me back to sort of that that Black Mirror episode. Did you ever see that one, Metalhead? It's the one where I think human beings are not quite dead yet, but like we're on the verge of extinction, and there are these metal dogs running around chasing us all over the place. Um, it's pretty it's pretty brutal. I mean, Black Mirror is is in my opinion it's sort of the new Twilight Zone, but with with a much more you know, sci-fi techno uh, yeah, outlook. Serious. Yeah. So, how do we get to that AGI? Like, what do what would what would what would the steps even be?
1: All right. So, so the first question is: Do we want to be there? Do we want to go there? Number you one. know,
0: someone's going to go there. It's just like you said; someone's yeah. going to go there. That's going to happen, and it'll Correct. probably start with military.
1: Correct. So. Yeah, I think the first thing is that you need to ground this in reality, right? Like, so, so these electric dreams that you're producing with, with chat GPT, you have to be able to take those electric dreams and, and confront them with reality, right? And measure if what, they, what it's saying is not just a runaway hallucination, as they're called, or, or if it has some basis, which actually is, is one of the biggest problems with, with that kind of technology is, and, and is what we're trying to, to solve in, in my, my current company, is exactly that, right? Like, how do you make sure that when this thing comes up with a very convincing story, because it says it in a very convincing way, how do you know that you can fact check that and know that that's true, right? So for any for any real-life application of this where you are making decisions that affect people, you have to be able to, to verify that whatever concoction. This thing came with matches reality, right? Or what you're trying to do, because otherwise could have catastrophic uh, consequences. So, so I think number one is that, and that's what we're working on now. Number two is that.
0: Sorry, sorry, just to clarify. Number one is attempting to ascertain the, the reason that you want to create it
1: the validity of what what ChatGPT comes with, right? Like, So so you ask ChatGPT a question, it comes back with an answer. How do you know that thing is true or not? You have to be able to verify or cross-check that somehow to know that that's true, which is a big conundrum, right? Because people are used to trust, like I, I don't question my calculator when I say how much is two plus two, Right, or whatever. I, I don't go and, and, and do the, the, the thing on a napkin to see. I don't even remember to tell you the truth, how to do like, like decimal division anymore. I know, uh, it's, uh, I know. I don't either. It's embarrassing. Right, <laughs> right. Which is another problem we should talk about uh, technology, right? Uh, and, and is that as you facilitate, or as basically what is beautiful about technology is that it expands us. It expands our intellect. It, it expands our vision, our capabilities. We can, we can get into a car and go at 150 miles an hour. If you run, you can never accomplish that. We can fly. We, we, we have telepathy. We can communicate with anyone, anywhere in the world at any time. You are in Texas. I'm in New York. We're having this conversation. This is enabled by technology. This is the beautiful side about technology. And, and this is, why I'm in love with technology on that way, but at the same and at the same on, on the, earth, the, the the flip side of that coin is that technology cripples us, and there is this very very interesting uh, uh, myth from uh, Plato. Is in in the I think it's called the Phaedrus uh, of of Plato, and it's the myth of Thot and Thammuz. Thoth is the god of language and he, he was known as a, um, Hermes by the Greeks and, and he is Mercury of the Romans and he is the father of language and intelligence and Thamus, who was a, a wise king from Egypt, uh, was sitting there one day and the god Thoth came to him and he's all excited oh, uh, King Thomas, look at what I created. I created something that is gonna help people, in the memory of people is called uh, uh, writing. And then the King Thomas goes and says, no, you haven't created something that is gonna help or aid people's memory. It's something that is gonna make people forget because they're gonna rely now on writing and they're not gonna exercise their memory anymore. So you can see it both sides of the of the of the of the of the coin, right? On one hand, we made a way where we can transcend that with our memories through putting it in symbols and writing. So we can see what our ancestors were thinking five thousand years ago or three thousand years ago and so on, because of this technology. But at the same time it creates atrophy. Like, we don't know how to do long, long, long decimal division anymore, right? Like, we don't know. Think about, for example, uh, if tomorrow Google Maps goes away and you're invited by a friend that lives in the middle of Ohio somewhere. I'm in trouble. would you go? All of us are in trouble because we forgot how to navigate. So, so all these technologies, whatever it is, they have... Two sides, they, they enhance us, but they also create uh, atrophy on us, on our capabilities because we don't exercise them. And especially with these kind of technologies, I think the biggest problem is not the technology itself, but its centralization. So it's not only that you lost your, your ability to navigate, but you, you now depend on this central very powerful entity for your navigation and they may not have your best interest in mind when when they come to this right so so it's not only that i lost the ability to navigate but now i depend to this mega corporation this gigantic ent- entity for 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 me to know how to move around the world and and that's a huge dependency what happens when this thing goes kaboom or right like we we have a solar flare and light goes off on planet Earth, like we go back to a stone age in two days mm. so that those those things uh, and 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 we're very happy to to adopt all these technologies because they're cool and they're in fashion and today and so on, but you never people never stop to think about for a second what are the long term consequences of those things uh, so Imagine, imagine Gutenberg's print, which is the most is brilliant, and we're standing on the shoulders of giants when someone did that. It's so obvious and so beautiful, but it's so simple, right? It's, you're just like printing on paper with types made out of wood or metal. Look at the impact that that thing had in the modern world. Like it took down the the the, the Catholic Church, for example. It's, that's the power of a piece of metal and a piece of paper. So if you can do that with that, imagine when you're training a model in supercomputers and it takes and, and you spend a hundred million dollars to train one of these models. What is the future impact of something like that in humanity? Is mind blowing. We cannot even conceive what's going to happen with that. And, but no one stops for a second to question: Should we do this, right? And, and the, the regular answer is what you said: is Oh, but any, someone is going to do it anyway, so we better are the first ones to do it. Is is very, very interesting. And, and I have this love-hate relationship with, with technology because of that. Because I I think about these things, and I cannot conceive what's going to happen, right? But but you can imagine very dark scenarios. And at the same time, you can imagine a rosy world where we use these things for human betterment, but that doesn't happen very often. It's true. I mean, I I think
0: we eventually end up making technology beneficial to human beings, but I I would tend to agree that oftentimes we we tend to jump off that cliff without knowing where we're going to land. I think that happens pretty often. I mean, again, yeah, there's no better example of the Manhattan Project. Let's see. Win World War II or literally set the atmosphere on fire and and extinguish all life on the planet forever. That was one of the riskiest decisions ever. Maybe the riskiest decision of all time. I'm not sure if we've ever had something where like we weren't quite sure. Are we going to make a bomb or are we going to... Destroy the entire world. That, that was an it's, it's almost like
1: a, a plot from a James Bond
0: film or something at this stage. It's madness,
1: it's total madness. And we went through that, right? It's uh, madness. And it took us to like with, with, the, with the Bay of Peaks incident, right? And the missiles crisis in, 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 in 62, I think. Uh, 63, that, 63, I think. 63, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, we were at this from. Mm-hmm. From having a nuclear war with the with the Russians, right? And we could be very very close to that now, right? Like like it's it's crazy that we we live in this world where we take these emotions, and and, and we behave like 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 Neolithic people with with uh, just banging people around, right? It's crazy. It's it's, it's an interesting concept because it seems
0: like. That our compendium of human knowledge has grown exponentially over the past couple of hundred years. You could even say over the past couple of decades. And yet our, I don't even know what to call it. I would say something like our human soul <laughs> hasn't necessarily matured along with it. In other words, imagine we gave monkeys access to firearms.
1: Right.
0: I mean, they'd probably shoot everybody. And the thing is, we would we would look and say, well, yeah, of course, they're monkeys. They don't know what they're doing. And it's like, right, but when do we, <laughs> when, mm-hmm. what happens if monkeys actually invented firearms? I know that sounds mm-hmm. crazy, but like what happens if they just invented them? we are like, mm-hmm. well, they're monkeys. They shouldn't have those. And I'm going to go, okay, cool. But like, at what point do we say, well, we're just human beings. We're just one theoretical evolutionary step above apes or you know whatever you want to believe but at what point have we sort of outgrown our you know our capabilities as a human being with our intellect as a human being does that make sense i mean you you can sort of measure the human the human experience in a number of different ways Mm -hmm. and intellect i think is is one of the ways that we tend to measure it because it makes us look really good we We've done all this amazing stuff, and humanity's pushing so far forward. I'm going right, but are we allowing our souls, for some definition of the word soul, are we allowing our souls enough time to catch up to where our intellect right. has gone? Right,
1: right. And oh, yeah, and that, that's that's another thing that is super interesting, right? Is that we have taken reason to be the absolute god and decider on every situation that we have. And and this is something that started cooking probably at the Renaissance, because you had this very oppressive system of the Catholic Church and basically the only thing that mattered and and was acceptable was the texts, the the sacred texts of the Bible. We even lost the legacy of our ancestors, our Greek and and Roman ancestors. They were gone. And we have to be very thankful to to the muslims for for keeping them alive because if it wasn't for them we wouldn't know about plato or pythagoras or any of these guys because they were not valid because the only thing valid was the bible right And, and thanks to the muslims and their their vision we we were able to rescue that so we we should be eternally in debt to them because of that because they kept our legacy uh so there was a big dis- imbalance where, where you have this center, big center of power that controls everything in uh, all Europe and all Americas. And, and at some point, like during, during the French Revolution, there was a, uh, a coup against the church. And this oppressive idea uh, was uh, toppled. And they put instead, the goddess reason literally what they did is they took the churches, the, the Catholic churches in, in, in France, and they named them the temples of reason. And what they did is they got these French woman and they parade these French woman naked on the streets as the goddess of reason. we, uh,
0: have, her, we have her at Staten uh, or sorry, in, uh, at Liberty Island in New York. Yes, Lady Liberty.
1: Yeah, she's not naked, unfortunately. Or <laughs> fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> she's definitely would, would not... attract
0: more tourists. Let me tell you, it may attract more tourists, but I believe, especially at the time we were, when we were gifted that by France, I'm pretty sure the Puritan backlash would have been heavy.
1: <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> so so, I think everything is a matter of balance because. When you take reason, the problem with reason is that it comes actually from ratio and, and is reckoning, is counting. So all you can do with reason is at the end compare quantities. That's where they come from, the, the word comes from. And so anything that you cannot measure or quantify, you don't have a mental model to deal with that. So everything that is not quantifiable, you cannot reason about it, and it's not because it's irrational, because I think that that has a bad rap. It's because it is irrational. It's orthogonal to reason. So, so there is no mode in our head to reason about it because it's unquantifiable, uh, and and when you do that, then you're reducing the world to numbers, and. By the way, democracy is the perfect governmental system for a system of numbers, right? Because if God is the number, then you're basically ruling by numbers. Like the majority, I'm, I'm counting votes, and now I know who is. But but think about the consequence when, when, when you adopt a system of beliefs. What is the consequence of that? So if you look at it then health becomes a bunch of numbers what is your cholesterol level what is your pressure number right and how educated you are how good you are you at school becomes what is your score on the test math and this and and so on and so forth everything becomes basically a number and you end up what is your social security number and you become a statistic for the system you're just a number Right? So so what you're doing is you're you're removing what you cannot measure, which is the the human spirit, qualia, right? That part, your emotions, those things are not quantifiable, hence they don't exist. And and you minimize them and and put them aside and mock them. And even today, you talk to many materialists today, they would agree or they would they would say. That consciousness is an illusion. You're, you're, it's an illusion that you're having. And and that's so absurd. If you think about it, any, any theory about the world that we create and we can think of has to account for your own awareness because it's the only thing we know with certainty. The only thing we know is that we're aware. This world could be a dream, it could be a simulation. It could be made of atoms and, and, and space and time, but those things are hypotheses. The only no. thing with certainty that we know is that we're aware. And yet our systems to think about and explain the world don't account for them. That That's crazy because we have created this world and it's fascinating because it's ideological. One, one uh, I don't know if I'm going like crazy with this, but uh, one of the things that I love to read about and and see is measurement. And it sounds one of the most boring things in the world, right, the the measurement systems that we have. But the beauty of that is that those things dictate how we think about the world. So imagine like the the, the first uh, uh, systems of measurement were based on our bodies, right? So you have the qubit, which is probably one of the oldest measurements that we know. The qubit is the distance from the elbow to the middle finger when you extend your arm. And people used to measure things with that or the foot, right? And and for for many practical purposes, it's good enough, right? Like even when I'm hanging paintings or doing things, I use qubits and to measure things. And and things look kind of straight when you do that. Uh, so so think about the ideological uh, statement and the political statement of introducing the metric system. What is interesting about the metric system is that it removes us from being the center of the world and puts this abstract thing that is a 10 million of the distance between the quarter meridian uh, that goes through Paris. That thing is super abstract, right? And, and that was the definition of the meter at the time of the of the French Revolution, right? That's what they were trying to adopt was the metric system, uh, which is decimal system is not even the best. Like uh, you can argue that the duodecimal system, the con- counting in terms of 12 is way superior than 10. Yeah, I mean, stiv- you could, if,
0: if, you, if you get used to it, base 12 is way easier to do things in than base 10, that's true.
1: Yeah, and, and you have more more like like, it's divisible by my by my more by more numbers, right? So you can divide it by two, three, four, uh, and six. Ten is only two and five. That's why you cannot buy half a dozen of eggs, right? Because it's not it's not a new number. So it's superior. The other thing that it has and the meat is that oh, it's very good because we have ten digits and we can count with ten digits. Yeah, but you're using both hands. If you're a merchant and you use a dual decimal system, I can use one hand to handle my mer- merchandise, and look at how many phalanges you have in the four in the, these four fingers. You have 12, and this is your counter. So I can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. This is half a dozen. This is two thirds of a dozen. This is one-third of a dozen. And all of them, you don't need decimals to express that. You have one simple symbol to express those quantities, which are the ones that we use day by day, right?
0: It's an interesting so way, do... of, an interesting way of, of putting things. To mirror some of what you've been saying, I, I find this tremendously interesting. But uh, first of all, obviously, we have numbers to measure things because a lot of people find comfort in numbers. I mean, I'm an engineer. You're an engineer. Clearly, we don't have a problem with numbers. But at the same time, you're kind of dropping into more metaphysics, which I really, really enjoy because this is, this is one of the places where we have a really difficult time explaining these things where it's like, yeah, but how, how does one measure the things that are unmeasurable? And it's like, well, you don't, that's the problem. That is the problem. And the problem is that the measurement systems in place don't take these things into account that we know to be the case. We know for a fact like exactly like you said, we know for a fact that we are aware. Okay, measure it. It's like, but you can't. You can't. You can't do that. That's the problem. So it's already, objective. the only thing that you know is the one thing that can't be. Well, it's one of the things that can't be measured. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're already starting off with a with a, a difficult place. The phalanges. That's an interesting one. I I didn't actually count it up, but I guess it's true. I mean, basically, you've got three on four fingers. And yeah. three times four is twelve. You can literally go through twelve through each one of them. That's amazing. And,
1: and you count with your thumb,
0: right? And, and they, you just you just move up each one of them with your thumb. That's that's incredible. You actually have base twelve built into your hand. I didn't realize that. Right. And it's true. Um, we we obviously we went with base ten because we have we have ten fingers. But you know, there's twelve. You know, there's 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 effectively twelve markers on on four fingers.
1: Correct. Which and is you have one one hand notably free.
0: more efficient.
1: Yes and he's, he's, that's why hours that's the other thing at uh, the, the French Revolution they were so dogmatic about the base 10 the, the, the decimal system that they decided to change the time to be measured in in, in, in 10 hours so you have like 10 hours and each of them had a hundred minutes and you can you can find faces of clocks from the time of the French Revolution that have 10 hours. Like look for it and you you'll see clocks that have 10 hours okay? I people I revolted. They, they never adopted that. That was the, the part of the, of the decimal system that people completely revolted against and, and never took.
0: Okay. So, so, so people <laughs> did reject metric. I'll, I'll say, to be honest, I, I like the metric system better. I think it makes a little bit more sense, but you're oh. right. It does remove the human c- concept, although. I completely disagree with Celsius. I think oh. Fahrenheit is way better. I mean, I, I've had this argument a hundred times. I mean, when oh, people say, well, when, "Well," I'll just give a quick, quick explanation. When people are talking about sort of the Celsius metric, they're going, "Well, it's the boiling point of water," and I'm like, "It's it's the boiling point of fresh water." It's not the boiling point of salt water. So when you tell me, well, it's the, it's the thing we have the most of on the planet, wrong, that's not true. Salt water does not boil at, um, at 100 and it doesn't freeze at zero, that's for starters. But for second, the reason I, I, I'm always good about this is, let's start with Kelvin, right, from absolute zero. At absolute zero, you are dead. At 100 Kelvin, you are dead. At zero Celsius, you are cold. And at 100 Celsius, you are dead. It's never been 100 Celsius anywhere on the planet, not even close. Right. At zero Fahrenheit, you're very cold. It's below freezing. But at 100 Celsius, you're hot. And I find it odd that like in, in the arbitrary sort of Celsius, it's like, yeah, set the temperature at 22.5. So already I, I'm like, I'm already in this weird 22 range and then I need a 0.5. To get to roughly 72, 73 degrees. No, I'm, I don't like that. So I'm like, no. There's there's not enough there's not enough range for me to enjoy myself in this well, narrow I, band I, of I, Celsius. I really triggered you, Dave. You went on a rampage with that man. <laughs> I, I can't help it. the temperature one is the one that always gets me.
1: And actually, to to, to round out the story of the metrical system. Yeah. So so they, I think it was in two thousand. 18 or something like that, they did the, the next version or the, the next iteration on the definition of what a meter is. And now the, the decimal system is just based in universal physical constants and is ratios between them. So a meter today is the speed light in the vacuum divided by, I think it's called the hyper-transition frequency of cesium. Which is an atom. So, <laughs> so, so, imagine, imagine how abs- like we went from using the foot and and the arm and our 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 body to measure things right. to a fraction of the distance between the the North Pole and the Equator, and now is this incomprehensible thing which is completely abstract. So, so basically, and and it's a beautiful allegory when you think about it. What we ended up doing was detaching, it became so so abstract that we detached the body from the head. And what a beautiful, and and think about how poetic this is. What is the symbol of the French Revolution? The guillotine, what does it do? It severs the head from the body. it's, it's, It's a perfect tool for doing it, right? Like it's like you're literally detaching the head from the body. As Jose, the ultimate statement of reason. Jose, you're
0: blowing my mind. You are really blowing my mind right now. I, I've never thought of any of this. That's incredible. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah, and I think the guy who invented the guillotine also died in the guillotine. Oh, that's he died on I, the guillotine oh, as well. Yeah. That's so <laughs> brutal.
1: God. That's terrible. <laughs> and um, I, So now that we're do you want to talk about like a little bit between heliocentrism and, and a... a uh, geocentrism, yeah, which let's is, do it. Is
0: related. Oh, so, it's, they're they're very related. Neither one of is, them are true,
1: but they're very related. It is, it's part of the same, right? So, think about like what I was saying is that the way you measure the world and the way you the, the standards that you use to see the world determine the ideology of who you are. So, when we thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. We were at the center of the universe. We were important ideologically because, you know what? We're in paradise. We're in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the center of creation. And we were that. As soon as you remove that, and all of a sudden you are just on this small minor planet running around this small star in a lost arm of a galaxy among billions of galaxies around you, you're insignificant. So think about what that does to your psyche. And, and and it's very interesting, right? Because the more we expand our knowledge, you can look at it in two ways. Is yeah, we're expanding our knowledge, but we're becoming smaller relative to our, to our knowledge. We're becoming more and more insignificant relative to what we know. Uh, so, and it's funny, right? Because for all intents and purposes, thinking that the earth is the center of the universe is perfectly good and valid like thinking that the sun that the earth rotates around the sun yeah it 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 makes easier to us to calculate where is going to be the moon tomorrow and neptune where where in the sky how many people are looking for neptune and you cannot even see it right like (laughs) with your bare eye but but it is it's a mathematical artifact because you can model. You can model the motion the, the, of, of, of the revolving uh, uh, objects in, in space. Right. Thinking about Earth in the center, that's fine. It's more complicated, right? That like you need more 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 numbers to do this, but it's fine. Is and and by the way, it is the same because as you said, yeah, the Earth doesn't revolve around the Sun either. It does kind of, but but. The sun is remo- revolving around the... So you think about it, everything is moving through space, but the frame of reference that you take to measure things is not only a facility for doing calculations, it has a very deep ideological root, which is, where is your place in the universe? Uh, and, and and that has huge impacts, right? Like, like so when when you when you start measuring things only in in when you measure happiness in terms like they have the happiness index and you know about it right like and, and you look at these the the wealthiest countries are not where the happiness index is the highest right like you look at the nordic countries that they're socially perfect wink wink in quotes whatever that's where you have them the the highest rate of suicides right so people are clearly not happy there mm. So, so it, it's super interesting when, when you start to think about all these things and you put them in concert and, and you see how what the connections are. And I think I was listening to your last podcast with our education. Yeah, with Hannah. Yeah, that was fascinating. That was, I truly enjoyed that one. And if you think about it, part of what we do in, in our education is that we're very mental in the way we we educate people. People learn how to add and subtract and kind of, and read and write, and all these mental skills. But you never acknowledge your emotions, for example. You don't have a class where they teach you to understand and comprehend your emotions. And why am I fearful, or why am I sad, or why am I... Ha- you, you don't know. Those things run in automatic mode, and, and we don't know why. Like, so so the, the consequence of that is that people don't know how to control their emotions. They they're move emotions from movement, the same word, right, for the same root. Uh, people are moved by their emotions in ways that they cannot help because they don't understand them and they don't know how to balance them and so on. So so you end up with with rages and all this and unhappiness because people... That's probably the first thing that you should learn in school is understand yourself, know thyself. And and we don't learn that. We learn about how to add and how to subtract and so on. And then the other thing that I was listening, I love that podcast, and, and it made me think that what we learn in school is what to think not how to think i couldn't agree more that's that's probably the that's
0: probably the bulk of what hannah and i talked about a nutshell is it's not student first and i couldn't agree with you more that you you really learn this is this is what you're supposed to think but you never actually learn how to think i couldn't agree more correct and i
1: think in, in in three years in a good environment you could teach people how to be autodidactic So they can learn whatever the hell they want and they don't need a system to tell them what they have to think. But if I'm interested in math or physics or how dogs bark or whatever, I have a mechanism to try to understand that. And that should be the standard of education should be that like people should be self thinkers. I agree with you. It's interesting, though, what you just
0: just said um, previously, which was about. Learning about ourselves and not understanding how to control emotions and various things of that nature. Honestly, <laughs> I struggled with that growing up. I really did. I struggled with not knowing myself. I struggled with controlling emotions when I was growing up, and um, it took a long time to learn those th- that, that particular skill set. I, I think I would have been, I think armed when I was very. I think if I was armed with that skill set very young, very very young. I mean, I'm talking first grade, second grade. Um, I think that things would have turned out notably easier in various aspects of of uh, of a lot of people's lives. Well, I'm, I'm speaking about myself, so my life definitely, but I think if a lot of people were armed with that, I think we would have uh, notably less incidents of whatever it is that are creating these people to
1: be unhappy in the first place. Right. But there is a reason why they're called emotions, right? And is that... <laughs> I think I don't think
0: I don't, I don't think I would it's, it's interesting I'm sorry I didn't mean to to j- jump in but I don't really think the emotion itself is bad or good. I think emotions are not negative or positive but it's the reaction thereof. Like it's it's fine to be angry. It's fine to be jealous. Like those are standard emotions that people would say, "Well, those are negative emotions." They're not negative emotions. Those are normal human emotions. That's that's the full range. But how you react to those emotions that can be very negative or very positive. Uh, Correct. And again, I'll just, I'll just speak for myself instead of everybody else, but I really wish I was armed with, with tools to be able to deal with those things when I was much younger as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing about emotions, right. Is that they're called emotions because they move you. They, they're, they're forces that, that compel you to act in a way or another. Right. So, so if you're, if you're, you're, you're feeling fearful, you run. Right? or mm-hmm. if you're feeling anger, you hit, uh, whatever it is. But the funny thing when you don't understand them is that the reaction, you're going to have that reaction, but then the beauty of not understanding them for, for, for a population is that I can manipulate your emotions because I can bombard you with advertisement and propaganda and all these things, right, and political rhetoric, and I can make I can move you so, 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 from the point of view of of, of of the system as a whole, it's not good for you to know what what how to control. If you learn how to control your emotions, because all of a sudden I cannot move you, I cannot manipulate you with my with my sophisms and my rhetoric. So, so, it's very convenient, and I think a part of of the reason why why we perceive the educational system to be in such a disarray. It's not is not that the system is, is 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 faulty i think it's working perfectly for its real purpose not for its stated purpose that is to have dumb people that i can control and i can send them to war and things like that well
0: we're both technologists how do we fix this this is what we do for a living we problem solve for a living we just happen to use software to do it how do we fix this what what's what what are your ideas and for that matter um even besides what are your ideas, are, are, there, are there better ways of doing these things that you saw in Colombia compared to the ones that we, we do in the United States? I mean, I, I think we should look in all corners and all directions for, for solutions to this. It's a human problem, not
1: a country problem. No, oh, absolutely. Like, I think, yeah, the, the first thing is just stop thinking about borders and these like imaginary lines on maps that it's only, it's only a strategy to divide people against each other that's at the end what they are, like nothing else. Uh, so the, I think I agree with you. That's the first thing is this is a global problem. And I think education is, is the fundamental thing. If, if we don't utilize these technologies and, and these, like for example, the, the, the idea that you were talking about, like having these using YouTube or video, like a remote video to, I think that's beautiful, right? Like you could reach a lot of people with uh, good ideas, and so uh, so I think step number one to me is education. Like we we have to change the way the way kids are raised, and and it's a matter of balance at the end. Is technology is not good or bad, right? It's what we do with it, sure. but but if we only use technology, then we forget that we have a heart and, and because we don't understand it. And, and, and then we neglect it. Uh, there is, I don't know if you know, this writer, he, he's an Argentinian writer called Ernesto Sabato. He wrote a book called uh, The Tunnel. He's probably his most famous book. And he, he was invited in Rio de Janeiro to a conference and about uh, talking about social problems and this was i don't know if you've been in rio rio is this spectacular place it's like one of the most gorgeous cities in the world is this bay full of like these rocks that grow out of the ocean right (laughs) and 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 you have this city with these beautiful beaches it's beautiful and but there is a lot of poverty in 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 Brazil. And what has happened in Brazil is that like the front where the beach is and all this is where you have the high rises and the wealthy people live. So so the poor people have been relegated to back on the mountains, but curiously they have the best views of the city because they're up. Yeah, and it's called the favelas, and they live there. And so there was this this convention that happened and he was invited he's a social critic and he was invited to talk at this five-star hotel in rio in one of these rocks and he's there and it marked me what he said it was so so profound he said something along these lines he said so we're talking about the problems of the world here and how we can use technology to solve these problems but Look at this city. We're in a five-star hotel here, and we have running water. Across the window, across the the city, you can see there are the favelas. They don't have running water. We obviously know how to bring water to the top of the mountains. So the problem is not technological. And I think that that is so profound. Uh, because it tells you what it is, right? Like, we're trying to use our engineering, hyper-rational mind, and of course we can use that, but we have to see how we focus these weapons, these technological tools that we have in order to solve these problems without forgetting that we're we're trying to solve at the end. is not technological. It's it's a matter of the heart. Mm.
0: And this goes back to sort of about twenty minutes ago, when we were really talking about measurements, it's really, really difficult to measure these things, and that's the trouble is again we we want to we want to use this technology to be able to solve these problems and it's like that's not an engineering problem. we know how to do this of course mm-hmm. it's not an engineer this is a this is a human problem and and you're going say well well how, how do we measure that problem you don't you don't measure right. it. you just have to solve it there It's not about measurement, which is interesting. I think that we've really gotten away from that uh especially in the in the past at least in the past several decades as as technology has continued to march on et cetera. i mean i think in my opinion one of the more interesting advancements is cars and the reason i say that is that that was a i mean a hundred years ago that was a very very new technology in the 1920s very new technology entirely mechanical driven, 100% mechanical engineering, top to bottom. And yet these days, mechanical engineering is not, not used very often in cars at all. I mean, some of it is, but most of the car these days is electrical engineering and computer science. You're really just driving a gigantic computer. Um, and so we've really, again, as you say, we, we've sort of morphed these things into, to what's, what's the, the, the topic, of or sorry, the, uh, technology of of current current interest oh, fashion yeah <laughs> of fashion perfect uh, the technology <laughs> of current fashion and then we tend to look at society and societal problems in that in that way there was nothing wrong with previous cars you could make them exactly as they were in the 1950s you could make them just like that you could make them uh, you could make massive improvements on the engine in the mechanical sense such that they're they're very fuel efficient among other things. And yet we still make them into these giant computers. And even the parts where it's like, no, you really need fuel injection. It's much better for the car. It's, it's, it lasts longer. There's some, some fuel savings in there, et cetera. I'm going great, but you didn't just use a computer for that. You used a computer basically for the entire car. We, we changed absolutely everything in the car to, to now be run on these electrons as opposed to sort of these, these mechanical engineering and analog principles. And in that particular sense, are we getting further away from what it means to be human, or are we just evolving as humans? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking, asking you, what do you, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Like the, the, the promise of technology is that as as technology is to our service, we would have more time of leisure, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. man. Like, you see, like, it is the same, right? Like, you, you're you just pushing the problem somewhere else. And, and by the way, what we're doing is we're creating complexity along the way, which is a horrible thing to do because things are less and less understandable every day, right? So that's one of the problems of ChatGPT. It comes up with something and try to figure out why in the world it came up with that. It's untrackable. Like, you, you, you don't know. So... But the same thing, I remember the first car I had was like I was 16. And I had this car. It was an Italian piece of shit car called a Topolino, which means the little mouse. And was a car that like you could see like two people stretched, like like it was like two people tied on that car. And it was a piece of garbage, that car. Like it broke every other day. And just just to tell you for a moment, like on a sideway, one day. I got 20 people in that car, <laughs> 20 people, 20, 20 teenagers Years. on that car is it was so many people that the wheels were touching the chassis of the car. Like you could hear like,
0: <laughs>
1: and, and that's probably one of the reasons why I broke every other day, right? Like that, that, that could have something to do with that. Wow. Anyway, that car, because it broke so much, I fixed it myself. So I I knew how to disassemble that car into pieces, like take the engine out and everything out and put it together again. And I understood in my head, I had the model of how this thing worked. Today's car, I opened the hood and I have no idea what's going on there anymore. There isn't no idea. Same thing happens with computers. I'm old enough that, I I remember we used to assemble our own computers. You used to buy like these cards that you used to put on the motherboard and and they had jumpers that they were called the DMA, direct memory access jumpers that you used to configure to see in which part of the bus and the memory bus they were running and so on. And I could disassemble my computer and put it back together. I understood every single part of the computer, what it was doing and whatnot. I'm scared to freaking open my macbook pro at all because i don't know how to close it ever again like i don't it's magical i don't understand how it works anymore so as you introduce complexity we become more detached from what is happening there and less and less experts have the the knowledge on how to use these things which make these things less democratic right in a way it's true i mean i it really. De- I,
0: I imagine it really depends on how you look at it, right? I mean, uh, especially in our particular industry, computer science. Mm. I'm a big fan of high level languages. I remember doing C. C sucks. I, I I don't like it. I had to do all my own memory. I mean, you you've done comp- you did even deeper level C than I did with compilers and whatnot. Uh, I tinkered in the kernel every now and again, not really knowing what I was doing, but um, kind of playing around but the truth of the matter is like you you have to do all kinds of memory management you have to do all these crazy things that no programmers think about that today or at least none of the most of them don't java takes care of that for you or python or 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 go or even even you know javascript s- yeah, javascript objective c even the even the higher yeah. level c's they it really takes care of all that stuff that you needed to do which is interesting because i've done i don't at this point 25 years in technology i've probably done thousands of interviews i know engineers that i i did end up hiring a couple of these but they really didn't understand how memory worked in a computer they've just never had to do it they've never had to 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 do any type of reference counting they've never had to do you know memory management they've never had to malloc anything that they don't even know what <laughs> the malloc call is for the listeners i'm nerding out over here so don't worry about it but they count how many do,
1: bytes of, yeah, count yeah. By, sorry count how many bytes of memory these this, this particular data structure takes. Right,
0: (laughs) or for that matter, create your own data structure such that it's like, yeah, because I can't, I I don't know if I'm gonna have continuous, contiguous memory blocks, so I'm gonna have to create some. So there's all sorts of things that you had to do way back in the day, and and by way back in the day, I really only mean like 25, 30 years tops. But these days I don't miss a lot of that, but the truth of the matter is it's made things much more accessible. If, if we were still on C today, we would have, my guess is, one one hundredth of the programmers that we do. There's already a programmer shortage. We'd still, we, we'd have one one hundredth of the programmers that we do today because people would just be over it so fast. It's like, wait, I have to learn assembly in C? This this is terrible. Um, not to mention, oh, I, you know, it needs to run on a MacBook, which is an ARM, and it needs to run on an in Intel. and and it also needs to run on phones which means that i have to learn different types of of chip assembly no way i'm not doing that and so one of the things i'll just say in that particular realm is yeah i mean i think i think adding some abstraction to various technologies is a good thing but i agree <laughs> that you end up really you end up kind of kind of pulling yourself away from really understanding you know how how do the bits and bytes get where they go What are logic gates? What does it mean when something's open versus closed or half open and half closed? And so each one of these things where it's like, yeah, there, I mean, you can really understand how electrical impulses are transmitted from your keyboard into your computer, from your computer into memory, from memory, Mm -hmm. you know, from to 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 wireless or Wi-Fi from Wi-Fi across the Internet and so on and so forth. And you just you sort of end up with this. I mean, I'm, I'm using this as sort of an allegory, but. Right you basically end up with this thing where it's like, I don't really understand how it works, but I know it works and the the truth is for some point of our previous in points of our previous conversation, I think we can sort of say the same thing with the human experience, right. Some things are notably easier. I'm glad that we don't have to go you know hunter gatherer uh, right. for for foraging food. I'm glad that mega agriculture exists i'm I'm really happy for a lot of these technologies right. But at some point, yeah, we've definitely lost some human experiences along the way.
1: Uh, Right. And, and yeah, you, you can see both like the plus and cons of every, the, the problem with complex systems, like what you you could, you could think about the computer, right? Or you could, you can think about a society is that at the end, a complex system runs on faith. And let me explain what I mean by that. If I'm going to program in a high-level language, I have faith that the layers underneath that high-level language are working fine, and I trust them. Same thing happens in society. When you create a complex society, the system is based on faith. So, So if you have these long supply chains, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position in which you're trusting that these complex mechanisms work for you uh, now if your foundations are not solid and you don't understand how all these mechanisms work the day they collapse you're at the mercy of the elements because you like at the time of the pandemic i i rented a house upstate and I went fishing, and so when I started going on the in, in, the, in the little forest around, around the house where I was, and one day I found this little bear, and it's one of the most horrifying experiences I ever had in my life. It was very cute, don't take me wrong, beautiful bear, but I know that the mom is around, <laughs> lurking around, and I realized that I'm completely unprepared to live on the wilderness. Like, if you put me and that bear for a night in the middle of a, like a winter night in the middle of that place, that thing has more chances of survival than I do because it's adapted to that. And I rely and I'm at the mercy of all the complex of the complexity of the society that we have built. And But there is nowhere, like nowhere in our curriculum goes like, how do you make fire? Like, how, how do you take a, cook two pieces of, of wood and, and, and rub them together and, and make fire? How, how do you do that? We, we have no idea. So, so we're, we're totally at the mercy of the system where we live in. And, and it's very good, right? Like, I, of course, I love I love to have this technology and the comforts and all these things is awesome. but But we forget the price, the heavy price that we're paying for this and and we are relying on the system that may as well one day not be there for natural reasons for mismanagement reasons for economic reasons for whatever right for a failure in one of the atomic plants like who knows right like we we don't know but that we take for granted the the stability of the system that we live in that that's an illusion. That's not real. That, that's so brutal. The system we live in, the social system we have arranged is so brutal. Which is scary to think, all oh, that, but, but it's the reality, right? For sure. Okay, final question. If
0: you could will a technology into existence, having something to do with your field, what would that technology be? It mm, has to do with my field? Yes, because otherwise people pick teleportation every time. <laughs>
1: uh, Rick and Morty's. <laughs> <laughs> Portal gun. Damn it. Uh, oh, uh, probably. You know what I would love to do? I would love to have this holographic system where I could get the the image of the Library of Alexandria, and I could recreate the Library of Alexandria, and I could read those books and understand those books and see what the hell we lost there. Because I think there is a lot of knowledge and it's not like, I know guys, it's not like, oh yeah, but we have cell phones. No, no, no. It's all this deep philosophy of people who didn't have television, so they have to sit down at night because they didn't have light, and and they have to sit down across a bonfire and think about the human experience and think deeply because they were as smart as we are about these things. And they came with so much wisdom that we lost. And I would love to see what the hell was that.
0: Okay, that's interesting. That's definitely an interesting one. Is there a specific reason that you chose Library of
1: Alexandria? Because... You know what is the thing that I love about the, your podcast the most? The name. <laughs> because imagine the guy who came up with fire like the first time how to make fire or the wheel or these things that we take for absolute granted. They are the real giants. Like, And it's these people that we consider... They, they didn't use pants and sneakers. So they were like primitive beings. But they are... The real giants that made it possible for us to be talking here, and the problem is that we, they spoke in a different language, right? They, they didn't speak in the language of reason and precision, but they spoke in metaphor and allegory and symbol, yeah. and and we have a hard time understanding that. And and I think part of trying to uncr- uncrack the to crack the the mystery of who we are and, and why we are what we are. Humans have been thinking about this for many, many generations, but they didn't have a no way to write it. And the closest thing we have is the Library of Alexandria before it was burned down.
0: Excellent point. Uh, Jose, this has been amazing. Let me ask, is there, is there anywhere um, that you would want people to find you or interact with you online, anything like that? Twitter or any of that stuff? Well, I don't know if mental. people want
1: to. I don't know if people want to find me. <laughs> As my friends, they don't want to find me. But uh, so I have a website where I have a, a bunch of poetry and short stories and my photography uh, is Jose Maria Barrera. That's that's a mouthful. It's J O S E M A R I A. B A R R E R A dot com. I think I even misspelled that shit. I don't know.
0: Jose Maria Barrera, correct? Correct. Okay. .com. I, th- I think most people can end up getting that. It's two R's in Barrera. And there, yes. well, technically there's three, but two R's in a row for the first ones. <laughs> right. But that said, um, Jose, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, Wow, we'll have to do this again. Seriously, you, you, you really, really tweaked my melon on a couple of different things during this conversation. Thank you. Anytime, man,
1: it was a real honor. And, and thank you so much, I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. Oh, and for those listening, as a reminder, and as always, we have been standing on the shoulders of giants.